We'll hear argument now on number 94, 1474, Idaho versus Coeur d'Alene Tribe of Idaho. Uh, Mr. Strong. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Although states are part of the Union, they nonetheless retain certain attributes of sovereignty. Two of those retained attributes of sovereignty, the state's uh, sovereign immunity under the 11th Amendment and a state's entitlement to lands beneath the beds and banks of navigable waters under the Equal Footing Doctrine, are at issue in this case. The state of Idaho has been in possession of the beds and banks of navigable waters of Lake Coeur d'Alene since statehood. Pursuant to that possession, the state, pursuant to its duty, has regulated those lands for the benefit of the public as a whole. This action now by the tribe seeks to divest the state of that possession and instead reside it with the tribe. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals recognized this action uh, by the tribes with respect to the quiet title claims was barred by the 11th Amendment. But nonetheless, the court proceeded to allow the suit with respect to the state officers to proceed under the rationale of Ex parte Young. The, uh, under the injunctive and declaratory relief sought by the tribe, the uh, tribe would be awarded uh, quiet title and exclusive possession of these lands. But, but it would not, as I understand it, uh, be a decree that, that, uh, that would have stopped the state if the state later wanted to contest the title. Your Honor, Is that correct? Uh, no, Your Honor. It's you, not think there, you think the, the state would, would, uh, would suffer preclusion from that? Your Honor, by the very nature of these properties, it's impossible to separate the title from the possession of the property. Well, yes, but in, in one sense, it's always impossible to separate the officer from the state, but that's what ex parte Young does. And I, I would have thought that the state's ultimate fear would be uh, that, uh, that if, uh, if, if, it, if it had an ultimate fear is that um, if the officers lost the, stute, uh, the suit, uh, that the state would lose its title. And I would have thought, if for no other reason than the very nature of the 11th Amendment claim that the state had, that there would be, that there would be no uh, issue preclusion uh, against the state um, uh, if the state either later wished voluntarily to litigate its question of title or was, was sued in a state court for that purpose. Your Honor, the very nature of these lands is what brings the difficulty into play with Ex parte Young. Under the officer's suit rationale, it is assumed that the state simply could bring another action to uh, clear its title to these lands. But if the tribe were awarded possession of these lands under Section 28-2409A, uh, the Federal Quiet Title Act, it specifically precludes an action by the state against the United States government for possessions of lands held in trust but for the benefit of the tribe. Likewise, tribal sovereign immunity would preclude the state from bringing an action against the tribal uh, against the tribe. So you're saying it's the, quiet, it's the Quiet Title Act that would, that would uh, in effect, require the preclusion? The Quiet Title Act would because of the language in the Act that precludes an action by a state against the United States for lands that are held in trust for the benefit of the tribe. The, the argument would be made that... Well, but that's not, the only, that's not the only way the state could perfect its title, is it? Your Honor, that would be the only way the state could perfect its title in this case. It could walk in and seize the land, I presume, send in the State National Guard and wait for somebody to sue to get it off the land. Couldn't it do that? Your Honor, um, the state would be bound to abide by lawful orders of this court. The state officers are the ones that are being joined from possession of these lands. But the whole the theory is that that doesn't run against the state. It just runs against the state officers. You've got to get some other state officer, that's all. But the state cannot act but through its officers. If the officers are enjoined from proceeding, there is no way that the state could go forward. Well, so, supposing the state sends another crop of officers who haven't been named in this particular action, are they bound by the previous decree against the original state officers? 
Your Honor, the uh, successors in the office are the ones that would be bound by this particular order, but certainly you would expect the tribe would immediately sue the state to enjoin those people from taking possession of the lands. Of course, now, it works the other way around. If you, if, if, if you prevail on the merits uh, with a uh, ruling by this court that the president had no authority to convey away the lands, uh, I, I take it you would have the benefit of that judgment. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I don't understand the question. Suppose Idaho, suppose the suit were to go forward and Idaho were to prevail in this suit, or, or the officers would prevail in this suit, um, and it were held that the, uh, the the land had not been conveyed to the tribes. That would work to your benefit, I take it. Yes, Your Honor, and that would work to our benefit. The nature of the 11th Amendment, or the Ex parte Young, is its narrow exception to the 11th Amendment. As an exception to the 11th Amendment, it must be uh, interpreted in a way that accommodates the substantial sovereign interest of the state under the 11th Amendment. And as this Court has stated in the past, it's a you, you think it always operates in such a way that, in fact, the state is not bound? I mean, I always thought Ex parte Young was just a great fiction, that, that in fact, uh, 99% of the time you can say the suit is only against the officers, but as a, fact, as a practical matter, the state is, you know, is precluded. You don't think that's the way it works normally? You're correct, Your Honor. Um, it is a fiction, and the fiction is that the suit can go forward because it doesn't unnecessarily interfere with the state's actions. But in this instance, because of the very nature of the title of these lands, it interferes with the state action. The lands that we're talking about here are lands that came to the state through the equal footing doctrine. They're lands that are specifically identified with sovereignty. As this court stated in Oregon versus Corvallis, Sand and Gravel, that when you're dealing with submerged land, you're not dealing with an issue of substantive property law, but rather with the constitutional sovereignty of the state. So you're saying land and treasury. Land and treasury, we, we won't apply ex parte on. Your Honor, I'm saying in this context, sovereign lands is the same as the treasury. You should not allow an action to proceed against lands that the state rece- receives as an incident of sovereignty. That incident of sovereignty is that because of the very nature of these lands are held open for the benefit of the public as a whole, the state, when it receives lands under the Equal Footing Doctrine, is required to manage those for the benefit of the public, for commerce, navigation, and other purposes. But can't you say in any case in which a state officer suffers a, an injunction uh, that the state officer is thereby deflected from uh, performing duties uh, which in the judgment of the state would be better performed either for some other purpose, uh, for the purpose that, it, that, the, that, the, that was enjoined, and that there is always a kind of frustration of state activity as a result of it. And I don't, uh, for that reason, I don't see why there is some peculiar status uh, of, of, of lands, uh, even, even when the state has a, has a uh, sovereign purpose in holding the lands. Your Honor, these lands are identified directly with sovereignty of the state. As this court has, has said in the past, yeah, but the right to exercise any governmental function <clears throat> is identified with the sovereignty of the state, and yet the officer uh, who is who is ordered by the state to perform that function can be enjoined under Young. Your Honor, if the officers are enjoined in this action, however, the nature of the title the title isn't in the actual ownership of the property, but it's the regulation of that property for the benefit of the public as a whole. If the officers are enjoined from the ability to manage and regulate these lands for the benefit of the whole, then the very sovereign nature of that title is entirely defeated. Well, it isn't entirely defeated uh, if the state uh, has, as I assumed it had, uh, a right to contest the title in a forum of its own choosing. And therefore, it seems to me that what the state is suffering boils down to the fact that if its officers lose this suit, 
the consequences of that may very well precipitate the state into having to litigate the title itself. But what the 11th Amendment protects is not uh, circumstances requiring the state as a practical matter to litigate, but rather it protects it from being hauled into a particular forum to do its litigation. And therefore, if what the state is ultimately suffering is, in effect, the precipitation of litigation, in the absence of which it will suffer in some way, I don't see that that is the 11th Amendment's concern. Your Honor, if the state officers are enjoined from the regulation of these lands, the point that I'm making is that the state does not have a remedy. The state couldn't simply go out and commence another action. Well, you, let me put it this way. If we were to, to hold in explaining a judgment here that the state would not be stopped as a result of this judgment against the officers, if it wishes later on to litigate its title, then you would, you would have no quarrel. Is that correct? No, Your Honor, because this court cannot grant the relief the state would need to bring the action because of the Federal Quiet Title Act. And assuming that the tribe was successful in obtaining possession, the argument would be made that our action against the United States, the actual trustee of these lands, would be precluded because those lands are held in trust for the benefit of the state. Okay. I, I understand your position. Yeah. So you say that uh, the respondent tribe could not bring a quiet title action in state court? No, Your Honor. Uh, in fact, the state's position has been that that is one of the alternative remedies that are available to the Despite tribe. the Federal Quiet Title Act? Well, the Federal Quiet Title Act limits the state. So it does not limit, in your view, the tribe from filing a quiet title action in state court? No. The Federal Quiet Title Act would have no limitation. And the the state of Idaho has waived its sovereign immunity for such a suit? That is correct, Your Honor, that that our courts would be available to the tribe to fully pursue in the entirety the relief that they are seeking in this act. What authority from this court do you rely on for the proposition that the 11th Amendment bars adjudication of the state sovereign title question in federal court. Your Honor, we look to Treasure Salvers. Uh, in Treasure Salvers, the, uh, although there was a split plurality opinion, all four justices on each side of that plurality ultimately held that you cannot adjudicate a state's title in the context of the 11th Amendment. That would be precluded. You have to somehow be able to segregate the possession of the property under Treasure Salvers from the title to the property in order to move forward. The point that we're making here is is that under the presumption in Montana, which is a strong presumption of state ownership, that the only way you can determine that the the court can determine that the tribe is entitled to possession of these lands is to first determine that the presumption of state ownership has been overcome and that the United States abandoned its traditional policy in favor of holding these lands in trust. Rather than an issue of a taking of tribal property, this case really presents an issue of whether the United States took the state's sovereign title and instead bestowed it upon the tribe. That is the very nature of this case, and because it involves the state's title, is why it is barred by the 11th Amendment. Mr. Strong, I understood you to say that this case is about where the suit will be and that Idaho has a state court remedy, a, a state court where this disputed question can be tried out. Is that existed, the existence of that remedy essential to your position? Let's suppose Idaho did not choose to consent to be sued on this matter at all. Would your position be any different? No, Your Honor. Our position would be no different. The 11th Amendment precludes an action against the state, directly against the state. And since this is a determination of the state's title, it would be precluded by the 11th Amendment regardless of the unavailability of the forum. So is you, you're saying that... that Idaho has chosen to give the tribe a remedy in Idaho's own courts, 
but doesn't have to, so we would be left with the anomaly, if Idaho hadn't consented to be sued in its own courts, of a dispute over title determined by federal law, right? Because both sides are taking their claim on federal law. And no federal court could hear it, and the state court has chosen not to hear it. No, Your Honor. There is another remedy that's available to the tribe, which also takes us outside the context of Ex parte Young. A tribe, as a dependent sovereign nation, cannot hold legal title to these trust lands. Legal title is held by the United States on behalf of the tribe. So the tribe has a remedy here that's not traditionally available in an ex parte young... But that's up to the United States to pursue that remedy. Your Honor, that is correct, but the tribe can petition the United States to bring an action on its behalf, and if the United States fails to take such action and the tribe believes that it should be taking further action with respect to this property, it has a remedy against the United States to bring an action, reach a trust action against the United States to force it to either litigate the title or compensate it. Is Is there an action pending now in which the United States has brought? Yes, Your Honor. There is an action pending in the United States District Court in Idaho, and that action is properly brought under Texas versus, or United States versus Texas. The state has no objection to an action by the trustee of these lands as against the state of Idaho. The law is very clear in that matter. That action seeks to quiet title to the southern third of Lake Coeur d'Alene. It again verifies the fact that there is a remedy available to the tribe, and that is to petition the United States to bring an action on its behalf. Of course, even if that remedy did not exist, as well as the remedy of suit in state court, which you say also exists, it still would not be a unique situation, presumably, uh, uh, namely that uh, the situation of the tribe not being able to get relief would, would presumably not be unique, or relief in federal court. Would not be uh, Because uh, that's presumably a situation with respect to all claims uh, to money from the state treasury. That's correct, Your Honor. The very nature of the 11th Amendment creates this tension where there may not be an available remedy. And the idea of Ex parte Young was to address that situation. But as I've demonstrated both through the action by the tribe in state court or by the action of the United States, the rationale for Ex parte Young is not applicable in the context. Well, how, how do you distinguish the old, the old case of Tyndall against Wesley? Tyndall versus Wesley has, has been limited by the Larson case. And in that, what it basically says is there has to be either an action by the officer acting ultra vires, or Larson does, or alternatively, that there has to be some violation of federal law. There is no allegation in this suit that the state officers are acting any outside of their authority. In fact, the state officers are doing exactly what was expected of them under the presumption of federal ownership, that is, regulating these lands on behalf of the public as a whole. As to the federal question as to whether there's a violation of federal law, as I, this is not an instance where the state is taking tribal property, but rather the question is whether the United States took the state's entitlement and instead vested it to the tribe. And so the very essence of the claim isn't a violation of federal law, but a determination of what that federal law means. And this is well, but from the tribe's point of view, I suppose uh, if, if they, they have good title and the state occupies their land, uh, they would be able to treat it as some, some form of inverse eminent domain, wouldn't they? Your Honor, Your Honor, the state does not have an ability to take tribal land. If these are tribal lands, uh, state authority would not extend to them. This case is most analogous to a tortious interference type situation where there's competing claims as to what federal law means, and we're simply trying to resolve it. It's very much similar to, say, the Oregon versus Hitchcock case in which the state claimed ownership of lands under, I believe it was the Submerged Lands Act, and the court said, no, that was prohibited because it was an action as to the title of the lands of the United States. The, 
the state would contend that the officer's suit, the traditional officer's suit as we think of it, going back to the United States versus Lee, is premised on the notion that it's a state affirmatively acting against a private citizen to take its property. And that it's that taking that brings those actions into play. And the, the rationale of Lee is that we need that kind of rule to avoid the tyranny of the government simply confiscating state property, or I mean private property, for benefit of state governmental actions. We contend that under the equal footing doctrine, that concern is not present in this case because the state entered into possession as a result of statehood. It's been in possession for over a century with respect to those lands. And so we simply don't have that problem before us today. Likewise, as to whether the conduct of the officers is unlawful, which is a premise of uh, Ex parte Young, there is nothing in uh, the conduct of the officers here that would suggest that they're violating any federal law. In fact, they're operating, as I've indicated in the past, consistent with the federal premise of these equal footing doctrines to regulate them on behalf of the public as a whole. Yes, but if, if, if the tribe is right on the merits, uh, aren't they then violating some federal rights? Your Honor, if the tribe is right on the merits, there would be a violation of federal rights. But in this context, you can't... It seems can't to me your argument is sort of proceeding on the assumption that they're wrong on the merits, an issue we don't reach until we decide the threshold question. No, Your Honor. In determining this case, you must first consider the applicable law. And the applicable law from Montana versus the United States is that you must presume state ownership of these submerged lands absent an express congressional conveyance. And until that is established, the state is entitled to operate as though it has in the past that it is entitled to the ownership of these beds and banks. And until that issue is resolved, it is impossible to say that the state officers are not acting consistent with federal law. But isn't it correct? I know you say here there's both a federal action pending and where the United States is suing and, and there's a state form available, but if neither of those things were true, if you had a different case, you would still say that there was no remedy here? Yes, Your Honor. The, uh, so the federal question could never be resolved? That's the very nature of the tension between the 11th Amendment and the compact made with the states and the federal government, is that the states are to be free from uh, suits that will interfere with... Yes, the but with the, with the exception created by Ex parte Young. That's correct, with the exception created by Ex parte Young, but as, as I am contending today, this action doesn't fall within Ex parte Young. The purpose of Ex parte Young is to enjoin the unlawful enforcement of state laws, and before you can determine that the actions upon which the officers are operating... But unlawful in the sense that they violate a, a supreme federal law. That's correct. Yeah. And we don't know in this case whether there's a violation... Well, but we didn't know in ex parte young until after the case was tried whether there was a violation either. But we do know in this case that there's a presumption of state ownership. And that which is a rebuttable presumption. That is a rebuttable presumption, but nonetheless a strong presumption, and a court is required to begin with that presumption in any analysis of an, an equal footing conveyance situation. And given that... But isn't there also a presumption in the ex parte young area that state action is generally considered lawful and constitutional? You always start with a presumption of constitutionality whenever you challenge state action. Your Honor, the, the, the essence of what we're trying to contend before the court today is that under ex parte young, you start with the premise that a well-played complaint alleges a violation of some federal law supremacy issue. And the contention we make today is that there is no supremacy clause question here because if the state is correct, and you're required to assume that the state is correct because of the presumption until it's litigated, then the state is acting consistent with federal law. Once that federal law is determined, as it was in Treasure Salvers, then it would be appropriate for the court to go forward and to evaluate the merits. I, I, I really don't understand why the presumption in the Montana case is any different from the general presumption that state action conforms with the Constitution. That's, that's, that's where I'm not sure I follow your argument. 
I understand, Your Honor. Well, isn't your isn't the the essence of your argument, I guess, and and your 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 best answer to Justice Stevens, if I understood you earlier, that Ex Parte Young is concerned with a situation in which the plaintiff claims under federal law and the officers sued are claiming under state law. And here you're saying both parties are claiming under federal law. And that's why Young doesn't apply. Is, is that your argument? Your Honor, in part, that's our argument. We, uh, we contend that the question here is whose interpretation of federal law is correct. And until that interpretation is resolved, it's impossible to say that the officers are in violation well, of the Well, yes, law. but if, 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 we, if, if we understand Ex parte Young simply to be a means of litigating a claim of federal right against state officers, then it would not in any way be dispositive that the, that the state officers were themselves claiming to be operating uh, consistently with federal law or to be claiming affirmatively that they had a federal right to do what they do. Your Honor. So, that, I mean, that would be the end of your argument, I, I take it there. And, and, and I guess my question is going to be, doesn't every defendant in an ex parte Young case say, I am operating consistently with federal law? Most certainly a party says that in an ex parte Young okay, situation. Okay, so that the only thing peculiar about this case is that they're pointing, in effect, the state officers here are pointing, or are going to point if they have to, uh, to a title claim rather than, than to some other basis in federal law to say that they are acting lawfully within the meaning of federal law. Your Honor, Which what they point to is rather than assertion that they're acting in conformance with federal law is a presumption under federal law that no, they No, but are. that goes to the merits. I, I'm just saying what are the issues that are being litigated? Uh, and the issue that's being litigated is, on the plaintiff's part, a claim of federal right. On the defendant's part, a claim to be acting consistently with federal law. That is and that is true of every ex parte young case that is ever litigated, isn't it? But, Your Honor, the 11th Amendment serves the purpose of protecting a state in the operation of its sovereign duties. These lands, as this court well, it, said... It protects, state, state, it protects the state uh, from, from being hauled into a federal court under certain circumstances. Uh, and ex parte young says... Uh, you can, in those same circumstances, sue the officer. Ex parte young cases are, by nature, based on claims of federal right and defenses based on claims of consistency with federal law. That's what you've got here. Isn't that so? Your Honor, what you have here is property that's been identified as an essential attribute of sovereignty. If the 11th Amendment is to serve any purpose at all, it is to protect the sovereignty of the states from being sued in a court. Mr. Given, you raised two questions in your petition, and you have had no opportunity yet to get to the second one. I hope you'll take some time if my colleagues allow you to get to it. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, just to complete that uh, thought, the essence of the, if the 11th Amendment serves any purpose, it's to serve to protect the sovereignty of the state and its operations of its government. If ex parte young cannot be used as a method to simply sue an officer and vi- and to infringe upon the state's authority. In this action, the only way relief can be granted is if you directly determine that the state is without title. Turning to the second question that we have presented to the court, uh, we want to make first, first make clear of the issue that is before the court. We are not seeking a determination as to whether Congress took affirmative action in this case to defeat the state's equal footing title. Rather, our contention is that the... Um, president cannot act without express congressional authority to defeat a state's equal footing title. And we point back to the Sioux Tribe case in which it is specifically stated that uh, the authority of the president is limited directly to a delegation of power from Congress because 
the operation of the property clause is vested exclusively in Congress. So if, if in Sioux Tribe the court found that it's impossible for the president to convey an interest in property to a tribe of uplands, which are public lands, I want to emphasize it's public lands, not submerged lands, then it's also likewise, likewise and even axiomatic that with regard to submerged lands, which are held in trust for the benefit of future states, that the president could not act to defeat that title. Um, Mr. Chief Justice, if I may, I'd like to reserve the rebalance of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Strong. Mr. Gibbons, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may I please the court? The state is really asking for uh, state officers are asking for a new submerged land exception in two really very well-developed areas of, of the law. What, what the, the, the complaint is rather sketchy as, as to what these officers are supposed to be doing. Uh, it names the governor and, and the commissioner of lands, I believe, and the secretary of state. Uh, does it set forth with any specificity, or do other pleadings, supplemental pleadings, set forth with any specificity exactly what these officers are, are, are doing? Uh, that, that is inconsistent uh, uh, with, with, with the ownership that you, that you allege? The, the short answer is no. There are no supplemental pleadings, Your Honor. And that's part of the difficulty of the whole case, where this case stems from the most proceed, uh, preliminary procedures. The tribe filed its complaint. It is generalized complaint. Uh, it does specify certain statutes that they are... Uh, the state officers are operating under. The governor is holding a uh, statutorily, state statutorily created water right. The members of the land board that was, uh, are enforcing a state statute that gives encroachment permits. Is that set forth in the complaint? In the, yes, Your Honor. At, uh, All right. I, I didn't see that. It's, a, it's in your response at page... Uh, uh, um, at... Um, our response to the petition for cert at page, uh, page, 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 page 3, and then that's at page 12. Um, asking that the, uh, um, the water right in 67-4304 uh, be declared invalid, and the rest of them, Your Honor, are, are really in, in more of a general way. Um, which brings yes, up but, this, but this, that, that, that uh, simply sets forth the extent of the declaration that you choose. It doesn't say that any particular officer is, is enforcing this in any particular respect. Uh, it, it just seems to me if you're going to rely on the doctrine of ex parte young, this is a very sketchy pleading. It should be. It needs to be amended, Your Honor, for obviously for that reason. If the state felt that there was. They didn't understand what we were suing about. There, of course, there's the the rule for asking for more specific statement. The uh, the other reason the complaint needs to be amended is that when the complaint was filed, we felt we had a theory because of the way Idaho defined its sovereignty as to not include quiet title actions that we could sue the state to quiet title. Not include what? Quiet title actions? Yes. Yes, there are two Idaho Supreme Court cases that say that quiet title actions do not impact the sovereignty of the state. And we felt because of that, the 11th Amendment was not applicable. The Ninth Circuit felt otherwise. Uh, we asked this court to uh, review that, chose not to, so it's, it's not part of the case. So to get that out of the case, we're, we're going to have to amend on remand. And 
very well the complaint should be more specific. Uh, can, can you just tell us briefly what the reasoning of that is, that the quiet title actions don't impact the sovereignty of the state? The, the cases are the Roddy and the Lyons cases, and the, the thinking of the Idaho court was simply that quiet title actions were actions against the land, not against the sovereignty of the state. Oh, is it the in-rem personification notion? They didn't use those exact words, but that basic concept, yes, Your Honor. Uh, well, that's a pretty strange doctrine, isn't it? I mean, if the state claims sovereign title and the quiet title action deprives the state of it, uh, how can it be said it doesn't affect the state in its sovereign capacity? Maybe I didn't understand the question, Your Honor. Well, I don't see how the state could take the position that a quiet title action um, asserting that the state lacks title to lands that the state claims in its sovereign capacity. How can it be said that doesn't affect the state's sovereign interests? The, um, the Idaho court was in the Roddy and Lyons cases were presented with a uh, uh, claims against the state to quiet title and they they chose not to, to waive sovereign immunity judicially, which is what most states have done. Yeah, but you do agree in any event that a quiet title action could be brought by the tribe in state court? No, Your Honor. Um, there is a very serious question of state court jurisdiction. Um, of course, there's the initial question of no state court jurisdiction over the tribe, uh, personal jurisdiction, but there's also a very serious uh, subject matter jurisdiction question. The, from the outset of the Indian law jurisprudence in this country, uh, the courts have held that generally state courts have no jurisdiction over Indian lands. Even when the, even when the Indian tribe is the plaintiff? Yeah. Well, n not talking about, about personal jurisdiction, but the subject matter jurisdiction of the court. But the, the subject matter jurisdiction, aren't the court, the, what, do you, what is it, the circuit court, the superior court, the, the district court, and I, the district court is a court of general subject matter yes. jurisdiction, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it, it's not confined to certain types of cases. You can bring any case you want, can't you, if, unless there's a, a amount, in, amount in controversy requirement. Well, I guess the, the, the problem, Your Honor, is that litigants cannot create subject matter jurisdiction upon a court that it doesn't otherwise have. And the only congressional act that, or the, the primary congressional act, uh, that conveyed subject matter jurisdiction on state courts to adjudicate uh, uh, inter Indian interests was Public Law 280, of course. And in, that, in Public Law 280, as is discussed in Bryan, Pasco County, um, it's very clear that the, the statute, Congress specifically said that uh, state courts do not have jurisdiction to adjudicate property determinations in, in Indian country against tribes. So an Indian tribe couldn't go into the district court of Ada County or something like that and sue someone who is trespassing on tribal property, in your view? I, I guess it would be... Um, I, Short answer to your question, Mr. Chief Justice, is there is a serious question of subject matter jurisdiction. It would be like someone in Maryland going into Virginia court and uh, suing uh, to quiet title against someone in Virginia to property in Maryland. The tribe's 
uh, basis of the whole lawsuit in this case is, of course, the tribe's title to the lake. Uh, it is not, the tribe is not trying to take anything away from the state. The tribe has always owned that lake in the tribe's position. Uh, and all that the tribe is asking for is to have a federal court hold that the state officers who are regulating on that lake are, should not be doing that. In fact, there is another suit pending right now that would determine the issue of title? For, yes, Your Honor, for a portion of the lake. Um, lake Coeur d'Alene is a long, skinny lake, and the United States has brought suit for a portion of the, of the southern part of the lake. The tribe's suit is for the entire lake. So part of it is covered by the U.S.'s suit. Part of it is not. Uh, the tribe has been granted intervention status in that case, and we tried to expand it to the whole suit, and the district court probably quite properly limited it to the parameters of the United States' complaint. As to the 11th Amendment uh, issue generally, if I could, if I could get to that, um, the thrust of the state's argument, state officer's argument, as, as we understand them, is that there is another remedy, just as we've been speaking of, this state court remedy, and the tribe could go there like any other citizen could go to state court. Well, there may be problems with it, we just discussed. But the state officers merge federal officer suits and state officer suits um, uh, and pick and choose bits and pieces of cases back and forth. When in reality, when they're, they're looked at carefully, they really come from protecting different interests in the 11th Amendment or in sovereign immunity context. The federal officer suits are designed to provide a remedy, primarily in the takings area. And as Congress has provided those remedies, be it the Quiet Title Act or some other remedy, then there is not the constitutional problem in federal officer suits. In the state officer suits, the problem has primarily been the supremacy of federal law. Now, there have been a few, few state officer suits where the federal law problem has been lack of a remedy, but that is not the situation in this case. The, the, the state officer's position finds no support in the cases that actually provided the foundation for Ex parte Young, Lee and Tyndall, particularly Tyndall, there's, it is, uh, unless there is a distinction made because this is submerged land as opposed to any other kind of land. Tyndall tends to negate your statement that you distinguish sharply between state officer suits and federal officer suits. Uh, they, didn't they say there that the question whether a particular suit is one against the state within the meaning of the Constitution must depend on the same principles that determine whether a particular suit is one against the United States? The federal violation of federal law, the supremacy interest that was being protected in Tyndall, uh, in that case was a taking interest. The, just as it was in, just as it was in Lee, there wasn't, hadn't been provided a remedy. So to that context, the two concepts merged. In this case, the federal interest that is being protected is the, the constitutional primacy of, uh, 
federal regulation, federal control of, of Indian reservations, the statutes which implemented various aspects of, of uh, the creation of the Coeur d'Alene Reservation, the executive order, and the common law theory of, of aboriginal title of tribes. Um, so there, uh, I mean, Mr. Chief Justice, it's one of those situations, I think, where you can say, yes, this is like that, but really, when, when you, you look at it underneath, Tyndall, just like all of the other state officer suits, are protecting the supremacy of federal law. But in this case, that's odd because we're only talking about federal law on both sides. The usual justification for Young is that you have to vindicate the superior federal law as against the inferior state law. But here, both sides are advancing federal law as the basis for their claim. Your Honor, there's no question but what the state officers thrust that forward as their argument. But the... I think the, the, the more appropriate way to analyze the, the issue here is that the, the tribe claims ownership based on federal law. And as a result of that claimed ownership, is asking the federal court to enjoin state officers from their regulation of the tribe's leg under state law. Now, then the, the state officers come back, on the other hand, and say, well, no, we have a uh, claim under federal law why our officers are doing the right thing. And it, uh, it's just as, as Justice Souter was, was uh, describing in, in his question, it's exactly the same sort of situation, really, that you always have in any ex parte young situation where the state officers are saying, we are acting appropriately under federal law, uh, whether it be this particular one or some other federal law that justifies our action. Mr. Gibbons, could you, could the tribe sue in federal court just to determine title to this property? Or do you concede that that is not, that the 11th Amendment would bar that? Well, uh, Your Honor, that's what we did. And the, uh, uh, that's what the Ninth Circuit said it could not do, because that would be an adjudication of do you accept the that? State. Yes, Your Honor. The state officers themselves, those are the only defendants that we're left with. All right. Do not and you are them. not here arguing that the tribe could bring a direct suit uh, in federal court to determine title? That is correct. That is the... Well, what are the attributes of title ownership? Uh, they are the right to possess and control and regulate the property, I guess. Well, it's, I guess and it's won't like, that have to be determined, basically, by deciding who has the title? I mean, how would you ever be able to determine that the tribe has the right to possess, regulate, and exclusively do so without determining that the tribe had title, and that's the basis for it? The issue of title will be an issue, just as well, the... Well, that being the case, I don't see why the 11th Amendment shouldn't be a bar here, because you are, in essence, asking the court to do what you've conceded the court can't do. I, I just don't see why the 11th Amendment doesn't kick in here. That is exactly the question that this court addressed in Lee. It is exactly the question this court addressed in Tyndall. And in both instances, they said, no, we can separate the determination of title 
from the, in those cases, trespass, in this case, regulation by the state officers. The litigation against the state officers does not preclude the state from later litigating title. And Gibbons, Larson is more recent than those, and I thought it was made pretty clear in Larson, which was against the federal government, of course, that you, you, you can't proceed unless either the officers are, act, are acting beyond their authority, ultra vires, or their action is unconstitutional. Now, that was a federal, mm-hmm. a federal case against the United States, but I thought we made clear, or at least the various opinions made clear in, uh, in treasure salvers, that we would apply Larson in the state context as well. Now, would, would you meet the requirements of Larson? The officers, it is never within the officer's ability as a state officer to violate the federal constitution, and these, uh, part of which is the supremacy clause, and that is where the state officer and federal officer cases part, Your Honor. And I think it is why it is so important to, to keep clearly in mind which interest is really being protected. Uh, in the state officer cases, the constitutional interest that is at issue is the supremacy of federal law. It is not the, whether or not the state officer is acting within or without his, his authority. That state officer can be acting within his authority under state law and still be acting in violation of federal law unconstitutionally. And the, the, thrust of all of Ex parte Young jurisprudence is that this, the federal court still should appropriately provide a remedy, not necessarily to test whether or not the officer is acting properly or improperly, but to, to uphold the supremacy of federal law. That is the underlying thrust of all the state officer cases. So to the extent that the uh, this is this factual situation is a little bit different in Larson. It is because the results should be different in, in Larson. It is because it rests on different underpinnings. I thought, Mr. Gibb, oh, I'm sorry, please, please. Mm-hmm. I, I wondered if uh, I, I'm slightly uh, I'd appreciate some clarification on, on this question of title versus uh, what's going on here. My, my understanding of it was that really this is a suit which someone who was not steeped in 11th Amendment law would say was a suit for title. I don't know what the state can do if you win with the submerged land. I don't know what laws it could enforce. Sounds like you're getting the property. The only reason I suppose that title came in is in a case called Tyndall. The court held that a suit just like this one wasn't really against the state. Though it is, but uh, nonetheless, we give the state an escape hatch that because of the last paragraph, the state won't be bound as to title, thus they get an extra chance to come back and fight it if they want. Is that understanding correct? I think that'd be correct, yes, Your Honor. The, don't say it's correct if you don't really agree with it. Cause well, maybe, the, maybe I misunderstood exactly what you said then. I mean, no, no, if you do agree, fine. I'm happy that that, that is correct, But if it is. But, I mean, I'm trying to follow through the intricacies. I've got your argument before that you thought, in reality, ex parte young is simply a way of permitting, in certain cases, 
the assertion of the federal interest in states obeying federal law. That's correct, Your Honor. And you think that you can't distinguish real property cases where the federal law gives the property to Jones or Smith or the Indian tribe from cases involving mental hospitals, schools, churches, whatever. Is that right? That's correct, Your Honor. They're both based on the supremacy of federal law. All right, but then we run into this doctrine, and you think Tyndall is strongly in support of you? It is to the extent, Your Honor, that Tyndall said clearly that you, the federal court, can enjoin a state officer mm -hmm. who is holding properly unconstitutionally without adjudicating the title to that property. So, so what we have, is it fair to characterize, we have a fiction on a fiction. There's the fiction of ex parte young because it's simply a fictional way of allowing the assertion of federal supremacy in an important number of cases. And then we have the fiction that that wasn't really a property state title, which it is. And now we get a new fiction which allows the state to come back and really sue for, uh, for uh, title, even though you win this case. You win the case, the state isn't barred from bringing its title suit. Is that right? That's right. That's right. All right. Well, what good does it do you then to, to win this case if, if the state isn't bound? The state officers can no longer regulate the tribe's lake. Um, the, the, uh, so you really, you, 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 the benefit you get is you get the same result as if you had quieted title. There are very there are similarities, Your Honor. There is no question about that. And the the Mr. Gibbons, isn't it more than similar? Isn't aren't you saying in effect you get the result of your lawsuit if it were allowed to go forward would be you'd have title as against all the world except the state of Ohio, uh, Idaho. The after um, because you would have to establish your title, although. One party, Idaho, wouldn't be bound by it. The, in determining the suit, the court would adjudicate the tribe's ownership. It would not have to adjudicate the state's ownership. Well, they both, I think we can agree that they both can't own the same land. It either belongs to one or the other. And my question to you is, isn't the thrust of your lawsuit, we own it? There's one party left out there who can contest that, but no one else in the world. That's right. And as with any, anyone files any quiet title action, if you don't sue Jones and Jones uh, has a claim to it, you may get your, quiet, your title quieted to everybody except Jones. Jones can still come in and make a claim for it. Mr. Gibbons, may I go back to your answer to an earlier question uh, from Justice Ginsburg? I'm not sure that this should be dispositive of anything in the case, but... As I recall your answer, it was uh, in, in, in questioning whether this case fit within the ex parte Young framework. You said that, um, in fact, what the state officers were claiming here uh, were claiming uh, rights to, to regulate in the enforcement of state law. In other words, uh, it wasn't merely a matter of two contesting titles. Uh, there was state law which had been enacted uh, to determine just how the state would regulate and what it would do, uh, and that therefore uh, the, the contest here was really a contest between a claim of superior title on the one hand uh, and a claim to enforce particular state laws, uh, which ultimately uh, implied a, a, a contrary claim of title. 
Is that right? Yes, Your Honor. Are we in a position to assess that answer? Because I, I thought the, the, very, the very answer that you gave to Justice Kennedy earlier was that there, there are no specific detailed claims against state officers at this point. That's just not the state of the pleadings. And you said, well, we ought to go back and amend. So are we really in a position to accept your answer uh, that what is being contested here are particular acts of regulation by particular state officers enforcing particular state laws? Is that really before us? The... may be correct, Your Honor. Uh, it, it, um, it puts a litigant, of course, in a difficult position. You, you plead a complaint with, with uh, several different counts and theories, and, and the appellate court says, well, you lose on some of those, and there's some that's left. And instead of having the opportunity then to amend, as you would on remand normally, all of a sudden uh, you're up here on the remainder. Um, the, the preliminary nature of this case makes it very difficult to deal with this, not only this issue, but also the uh, property clause issue. And um, uh, if I could just address that for just a moment. Um, the, the tension in the property clause that the state officers raise is really between the executive and the Congress. And, and again, the state officers are asking for a unique exception to some, some very well-settled law uh, in this regard. Uh, Thirty years ago in Arizona, California, the, this court said that there was no difference between reservations, Indian reservations created by executive order and those created by, uh, by treaty as to either land or water. But they weren't talking about the equal footing doctrine. Then, they were not. They were talking water rights, Your Honor. Um, the, the 80 years ago... And it's different. Creating a reservation is much different than conveying land. The... Well, the creation of the reservation can or cannot convey land, and there was little analysis in that case. There's no question about that. But it did cite to Midwest Oil, uh, which was decided 80 years ago, when this court held that the congressional acquiescence could, uh, the, uh, or by congressional acquiescence, executive orders creating reservations, um, uh, those reservations would be would be valid. Well, Midwest Oil was certainly distinguished in the steel seizure case, was it not? It it acquiescence is not a a, uh, a sure favored doctrine. Yeah. However, Coeur d'Alene was cited as one of the 99 Indian reservations in Midwest Oil. 125 years ago, in Holden, this court said that. If there's an executive order and then later congressional acts that recognize that, and that's exactly what we have here. We have four of them that were listed in the brief, all pre-statehood, that specifically recognize the Coeur d'Alene Reservation, specifically recognize the, uh, what the executive had done. And probably most on point, uh, in 1888, Congress asked the executive, uh, does this reservation include some of the navigable waters, and should we send appoint a negotiating team to go out and negotiate for the cession of some of that. The executive branch said, yes, it does, and if you do, you should pay them for it. Um, they then acted affirmatively upon that and, and appointed a negotiating team. So there is that later congressional recognition. Finally, as... Of course, you could have the reservation here by executive proclamation and simply not get the submerged land rights. That's entirely possible, Your Honor, and... 
The difficulty with even arguing this issue at this point is it is at such a preliminary stage, and those questions need to be, I mean, that's the heart of the case. They need to be developed, and that's the place to do that is a trial. Well, what, how, how, how further would you do? I mean, if, in fact, a presidential proclamation without the authority of Congress cannot cut off a state's rights under the equal footing doctrine, there's nothing that a trial is going to prove about that. Oh, yes, Your Honor. The state concedes that there are several other theories which are pled in the tribe's complaint which are not within the issue presented and which has to be remanded to trial. Well, but at least that would decide this. If we were to hold that, that would decide this aspect of the case. I've gotten lost in the, in the, uh, in the words, Your Honor. Well, I, I, don't, I, I won't detain you. Thank you. Love uh, it, Your Honor. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Strong, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, one quick point with regard to the 11th Amendment issue. I would like to go back to a question, two questions were posed by this panel to Mr. Gibbons, one by Justice Connor and one by Justice uh, Ginsburg. As Justice Ginsburg rightly points out, what the tribe seeks, and as stated in uh, their response brief on page four, what remains of the suit is declaratory and injunctive relief against Idaho officers to stop their violation of federal law and to quiet the title tribe's title against the world other than Idaho and its departments. And as Justice O'Connor rightly observed, the essence of title to property is the, uh, the opportunity to possess that property, and that's particularly true with respect to sovereign submerged lands. As this court said in Oregon versus Corvallis, Sand and Gravel, submerged lands cannot be compared to substantive property law, but rather as an issue substantially related to constitutional sovereignty of the states. The unique aspect of that sovereign title, there's a legal title and a public title is the responsibility of the state to manage those lands for the benefit of the public. If the officers are enjoined from carrying out that sovereign duty, how can it be said that the sovereignty of the state is not affected? What we have here is... the answer on that point, on that very point, to Tyndall. I thought they got that from the last paragraph of Tyndall. So what, what is the answer to that? I'm sorry, Your Honor. Where, they, where the court, this court seemed to divide all the aspects of title, I mean with the fiction of the title itself and says the state gets another chance to litigate it. Tyndall is a much different case than the case we have before us because in Tyndall it was an issue where the officers, through their actions, came into possession of the property. These officers have no relationship to the title here. The title passed the state on statehood. We've, we've possessed it since that date. And so the race, the officers' duties, what they're doing, have no relationship to title whatsoever. And so the only way you could bring in Tyndale is to say that the officers are taking the property. How can it be said that they're taking the property if they have never, by their own actions, took possession of the land, but rather came into possession as a result of the constitutional presumption? Idaho a, could have no complaint, could they, except for a defense on the merits, if the United States in its suit has, had chosen to litigate on behalf of the tribe for this entire, for all the land that the tribe is now claiming, rather than just a part of it? Certainly not, Your Honor. If the United States had felt that there was a basis for making a claim for the entire lake, it could have brought that action. The state would have no objection to that type of lawsuit. And there's nothing to indicate why the United States, in this record, why the United States sued for less than what the tribe is claiming? No, Your Honor, but the reasonable assumption is that the United States has evaluated that claim and determined there isn't a federal interest in the northern two-thirds of the lake. Turning to this, the last or second question we presented to the court, as Mr. Givens rightly points, that his theory is based upon the idea that Midwest oil somehow gave the president authority by acquiescence of Congress. And it's our position that 
uh, property clause powers are vested exclusively within Congress, and under Sioux Tribe, the only way that authority can be delegated to the President is by an express action of Congress. This is particularly true with regard to the submerged lands, which are held in trust for the future states. If a President can simply unilaterally take those lands out of trust, then what aspect of sovereignty is really being protected? In fact, um, the sovereignty of state, the state would have no way of protecting itself against such a withdrawal. Moreover, Midwest oil is a very unique case. It's limited to the situation in which the president is withdrawing lands, public lands that are available for sale. In Midwest oil, the court found acquiescence to be acceptable because in that instance, no third party was being injured. The state of Idaho is being injured by this action because the lands were held in trust for the benefit of the state. And if they're taken out of trust and conveyed to the tribe, then the state's sovereignty has been injured. Thank you, Mr. Strong. The case is submitted.